Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The enemy is you. Well, that was very rude, J.B. Pritzker. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, May 4th is just moments away. But before we do this, we need to thank our sponsors. Sponsors like SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana. The Chicago Federation of Labor are sponsors, as well as Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what to smoke. It's true. They talk about smoking pot on there. Chicago or cannabis. Sorry. Chicagoreader.com. And uh, to help out the Ben Jarofsky show, well, chicagoreader.com slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Not only will you find our endless archive of Ben Jarofsky show episodes, over a thousand episodes, you will also be able to help out the program by becoming a bin head. Yes, that's what we call avid listeners of the Ben Jarofsky show. It's a three-tier system. You can either be in the alley, the avenue, or you can be living large on Benny Boulevard. It's true. Chicagoreader.com slash Jarofsky to help out the program. The Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. It is Tuesday, May 4th, and live from my apartment in his attic, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, our Chicago Reader colleague Maya Duke-Masova returns and Chicago Teachers Union Vice President, SDG, Stacey Davis-Gates. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Yeah, hello everybody, Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Gaslight Tuesday and here's why. Because they're gaslighting me, people, wherever I go. First things first, have a nice weekend. Have a nice weekend, D. You have a good weekend? Look, rested. Yes, yes I did. Can. It was good. Yeah, I went miniature good. golfing. <laughs> uh, Maya, who's sitting by ready to come on, she looks rested, too. She must have had a great week. Maya probably went golfing with you, actually. I don't I think, think Maya's a golfer. <laughs> oh, I thought I saw her there. Uh, it was not Maya. Maya's a hoodlum, as we'll learn later uh, as when we bring her on this show. Interesting revelation in this week's reader from Maya Dukmasova about her hoodlum days back in the Soviet Union or the old Soviet Union. Anyway, let me get back to the gaslighting. I've been besieged on two fronts, national and local. Let's start with the national. I spent the weekend getting bombarded <laughs> with insanity from MAGA. They've tripled down on their central allegiance to Donald Trump. He sent out a message in a press statement this weekend that heretofore any Republican who deviates from the central assertion that he do not lose the election in November is perpetuating the big lie. Even though that assertion is in itself a big lie, as there is no evidence whatsoever that anyone stole anything from Donald Trump. He lost. We know he lost, but he keeps saying he won. So it's gaslighting. He's working at us. He's trying to get us to concede to maybe say, yeah, you know, maybe they have a point. Let's move on. That's how he dealt with contractors, ladies and gentlemen, back in his days as a developer. He said he cut a deal. Let's say he pay him $100 to fix the roof. 
after they did the work and they came with the bill, he says, I'll pay you $25. And they'd say, but you agreed to pay a hundred. And he says, so sue me. By then you'll have spent at least half of that on your lawyers and there's no guarantee you'll win. So take the money now and they take the money and he wins. And that's what made him quote unquote successful in the business world. And that's what he's doing to our country. I didn't lose. I won. They stole it from me. If you don't believe me, you're subscribing to the big lie. And it looks as though Republicans are sticking with him. Mitt Romney, the senator from Utah, never thought he would be a hero. He's really not my hero, but at least he's standing up to Trump. Booed in Utah. Liz Cheney, the congresswoman from Wyoming, may lose her leadership position. Booed in Wyoming. Tomorrow, Facebook will announce if they'll let Donald Trump back on. If he gets on, he'll have a bigger platform to stream his venom. It's like the plot against America in real time. Meanwhile, here in Chicago... Janice Jackson out as CEO of the Chicago Public Schools. I absorbed the Main Street coverage and it hit me. Boom. There's a narrative in this town when it comes to public education and I don't buy into it. It goes like this. The Chicago Teachers Union is evil and everyone else is good. The evil teachers union. It's like a monster. I'm reading the Sun-Times. The quotes are unbelievable. Let me just read you the quotes from Janice Jackson as she heads out the door. It's like... Right now, the politics and education are ugly. I think they've misplaced and they should not get the coverage that they get. I'm making a distinction between what you sometimes hear from CTU leadership and what average rank and file teachers want every day. Already the separation between the union and the teachers. Jackson says she gets emails all the time from teachers who say they don't agree with the hard line positions their union is taking or the harsh rhetoric emanating from CTU leadership. But she lamented the fact that nobody's speaking out against CTU leadership. It's ugly and it needs to stop and it doesn't need our district. CPS is an outlier. It's not normal. And I hope it changes for the sake of our children. Because the people who benefit the least from all that are children at CPS. Let me just point out, folks, politics is not new to the Chicago public schools. It should be called the Chicago political schools. Chicago Public Schools was given over to the control of the mayor in 1995, and that made it an extension of City Hall. That brought politics full-time into the public schools. I didn't hear Janice Jackson complaining about politics at the Chicago Public Schools when, as a Rahm Emanuel appointee, she fired Troy LaRavier as principal of Blaine Elementary because he dared to speak out against Rahm. How is that not a political act? I remember at the time I went to Blaine to hear the, to hear the evidence that they were going to present against Troy LaRavier. They go, we got some evidence. He did something really bad that will justify us firing him. They never presented the evidence. They just fired him. How is that not a political move? But when the Chicago Teachers Union goes on strike saying they want to contractually guarantee that we hire more nur- uh, nurses and librarians and social workers, that's a political move. Meanwhile, the Sun-Times takes it a step further. They quote Rahm Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel, here we go. Emanuel said Monday he struck gold with Jackson, whom he met when he was still a principal at Westinghouse. Quote, I think the world of her passion for children and educational excellence. I think the world of her commitment and her willingness to dedicate her life to other children. Oh, Rahm, please. He was, she was his third. Let me count it up. One, two, three, fourth person that Rom chose to run the school. One went to federal prison on a corruption charge. The other, Forrest Clayball, snuck out when it was obvious that special education program was in disarray. Now they're quoting him like, he too is a savior and expert, and he too wants to take politics out of school. 
getting gaslit all over the place, folks. Gaslit by Trump, gaslit by Rom, gaslit by my beloved bright one, Chicago Sun-Times, home delivered as always. There's like these little radioactive beams working in my brain. Zip, zap, zow. Now we control you. We shall see if I can fight them off. We got a great show today, everybody. Yes, indeed. Maya is sitting by. I'm looking at it right now. She's not going to gaslight us. She's going to enlighten us about her epic story in the reader. This I'm, I'm holding it up right now. I actually got a hard copy of the reader. I've fallen out into a bad habit, ladies and gentlemen. Let me confess this with Maya listening. I, I used to read the reader uh, and a hard copy of the reader for every week, for years, literally years. Maya was a young lass in the Soviet Union, and I was reading the reader in a hard copy. A young hoodlum, I should say. And, and then suddenly, I don't know, Maya, somehow over, over the last, I blame it on the pandemic. I started reading it online. Yesterday, I picked up a hard copy. I just love reading the reader as a hard copy more than online. And to make that confession, maybe that's just the baby boomer in me. Anyway, Maya, this 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 story is mandatory reading, ladies and gentlemen. Politics of fear: Are youth really to blame for the carjacking spike? Uh, Maya Dukmasova, this is an epic story. And then uh, in about a half an hour, Stacey Davis Gates, vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, she'll be joining us. Let's get the teachers union a little say in this matter, huh? <laughs> Both newspapers just filled with quotes denouncing the Chicago Teachers Union. Let's see what they have to say about that. But before we get to the schools, let's uh, turn things over to Maya and talk about her story. A story. Maya, are you there? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I'm here. This is a great story. Uh, you sent it to me last Wednesday, and uh, I dutifully read it online. And then I read it yesterday when I got a hard copy of the reader. I think it reads better. Uh, in the newspaper, I'm just saying, Maya, I just, there's something about an old fashioned newspaper. Um, but before we get to the story itself, and I want you to take us through uh, the story, uh, and you're really examining how, in in some ways, uh, Chicagoans are being fed a narrative that's brainwashing them. And I was talking about being gaslit on a national level by Trump and on a local level in the schools with Janice Jackson leaving. But you're also giving evidence of that uh, with the way we are fed a narrative about crime, carjacking, who does it, what should be done about it, how unsafe and scary things are. Uh, and then the bookend of that is this narrative that I didn't ever, I didn't see it online, but I saw it uh, in the, in the uh, hard copy. You told me it was online. A note on this week's cover story by Maya, a first person account. I tease you about your hoodlum days uh, back in uh, Russia. So why don't we start just with you reflecting on, on what you wrote in that, uh, that story about that reminiscence of your days back in the early nineties uh, when you were a, Preteen or a teen? Not quite sure which. Seven years old. <laughs> you were seven years old when you broke into that house. Of the story. Oh yes, <laughs> isn't that embarrassing? Um, she's mainly she's just mad because she wants to make sure she's really young, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but Maya, before we uh, talk about what's happening here in Chicago uh, with uh, car carjacking and the politics of fear. Just talk a little bit about what went down uh, in uh, when you were seven years old and you broke into that house and why you thought it was appropriate to tell that tale right now. Go ahead. 
Yeah. So this is this little story is is far less important than what's happening in Chicago and far less important than the the actual main story uh, that I wrote in this week's issue of the reader. But in the process of writing and reporting that story, I recalled this incident from my own childhood. um, And I had initially tried to fit it into the main story, but it didn't really there wasn't like a a good way to. shoehorn it in. And, uh, I, it just wasn't really necessary to bring myself into it in that way. But, um, our editor, Sujay Kumar thought it was a good idea to just include it as a, as a little note from the author. But basically I think that, um, as, as this conversation about carjacking is happening, um, which it has been pretty intensely since last summer, really, um, pretty much every day we've got like news about carjackings happening at a higher rate than they have ever been before, or they have at the higher rate than they've been in in the last 20 years. Um, We've got local TV news covering it, the newspapers. And so there's this impression that carjackings are just everywhere and anyone could get hit at any time that no one is safe in their cars on the streets. And that overwhelmingly young people are to blame for this. And so in my story, I actually dug into the data that the police department has made available about the carjacking incidents and about the arrests that they've made and and discovered that, lo and behold, the story they've been telling about who's driving the carjacking and why isn't exactly to be trusted. Uh, But in the context of this, I did also consider, like, if it was true that young people are doing the majority of the carjacking, one of the things that is important to consider at this moment is like how to respond. And a lot of the political conversations around the responses has been, you know, the same old kind of tough on crime. Um, You know, how do we best punish these kids so they don't do this again type of rhetoric. And what the experts I interviewed talk about is how much punishment and especially punishment in the criminal legal system is really not a deterrent for crime and especially not an effective deterrent to young people who are motivated in their actions oftentimes by much more proximal, uh, you know, uh, much more proximal consequences, such as consequences to their reputations, or peer pressure or things that are that 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 fought, that like proceed by a long shot something like getting arrested and definitely something like you know the 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 penalties you might face if convicted of a crime and so i feel like in the conversation whenever which this happens every few years in chicago there's like another rash of some kind of crime that youth are to blame for and you know there's scary accounts about how young people of color, especially black and Latino teenagers are just like running wild in the streets. You know, they're performing criminal actions in mobs. They're, you know, they're, they're completely impervious to like fear and reason. And it's, it's the old super predator rhetoric from the nineties. And in the context of this, and especially in the context of something like, you know, the, the killing of Adam Toledo, who's 13 years old, um, by a Chicago police officer, the, I feel like there's such a, like, it's so, there's such an erasure of like empathy for young people in this kind of news coverage. And there's a politically motivated erasure around this because there's some, you know, people, some elected officials get score points of their constituents for 
being tough on crime for saying that these kids aren't like us. They're not like your kids. They're not like we were when we were young. They're, you know, they're not afraid, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, I just think that it's helpful when considering the problem of youth crime of any sort, even if they're not the majority of the people doing this type of crime, if we're going to ponder the idea of young people doing bad things, it's important to remember like what it was like to be doing bad things when we were young people. So this is what prompted me to recall this story from when I was a kid, you know, and I was seven years old and I was hanging with like a group of older kids and we broke into a house and we like destroyed, we just did a lot of damage in the house. I don't know if anybody stole anything or what, but it was just something that happened one day in the summer when like we were, we were just like left to our own devices and there was nothing else to do. And there was an opportunity to do it. And we did it. Mm. And, you know, everybody has stories like this. I mean, since this was published, I heard from like a bunch of people with their own accounts of similar, of similar kind of things. And, you know, some would argue that like, Oh, Hey, like this isn't the same thing as carjacking. This is like, these kids are out here with guns. They're out here, like, you know, assaulting people, killing people, et cetera. But what we know from like, you know, brain and cognitive science research and psychological research and, and all, and, and like just all the social science and, and neuroscience that's out there about kids is that like, it's not, you know, the reason that my friends and I didn't have any weapons or I don't think we had any weapons and nobody, nobody got hurt in that way is just because we didn't have access to weapons. Like, Nobody, nobody had a gun. Nobody, there weren't any guns around. Chicago has like 500,000 guns in the city of Chicago. So CPD takes off, takes something like 10,000 guns off the street every year. It's like a drop in the bucket. To be like a kid hanging on the street and have access to a gun in the city, it's not like you don't have to be an exceptionally bad child to have access to a gun. So, you know, I feel like it actually doesn't matter whether... A 13-year-old has a gun, whether a 13-year-old shoots someone, whether a 13-year-old breaks into a house or steals a car or commits a carjacking. Like, while for us adults, these acts have these, like, huge amount of gradation between them. And we we see all of these differences between, like, violent crime and nonviolent crime and property crime and, like, physical assault. When... Like kids don't assess risk and plan their actions in the same way that adults do. And no amount of doing really bad things makes a child into an adult. And so, you know, Adam Toledo was like considered to be an adult risk, but because, because he was 13 years old and in a circumstance that that equates him with like adult decision-making. But this was still a 13-year-old child, the same kind of 13-year-old child that like CPD was sending out. I just saw this this week, a couple of days ago, they were sending out like a, like a press release about like an officer saving the life of a 13-year-old kid who had just been shot. Uh, there, there were like two teenagers and some other people shot at them. And so there was a cop who like saved a 13-year-old kid's life. Like that child is no different than Adam Toledo. And no different than you and I when we were 13. So if anything, 
mean, the kids who are at highest risk for being victims of violent crime or committing a crime of any kind, violent or not, are kids who are facing like a lot of adversities in their lives right now. And in the city of Chicago, they're dealing with poverty. They're dealing oftentimes with addiction. And this is part of like what I get into in the story as well, talking with some young people who work with their peers and mentor them and, and, and organize amongst young people. Like they talk about how, um, what the odds are, you know? And, um, yeah, like I, I just, what I was so amazed by is the, is the ease with which our elected officials, so many of them were like willing to slip into this kind of rhetoric that's based on like thoroughly debunked ideas from decades ago. But somehow it's still like politically advantageous to paint, you know, young people of color to be like scary and 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 use that as an excuse to advance like a, a tough on crime agenda to score points with voters. Like it's astonishing to me that this kind of rhetoric still scores points with voters, <laughs> um, given everything that we know. So, um, so yeah. So I thought I the story the main story is really partially about. Uh, thinking about youth crime and uh, talking about what we know about it and, and what's effective to deter it and what isn't. But uh, most importantly, it's also about the way that the police department has been distorting the narrative about who's committing these carjackings and why based on an arrest rate of like 15% at most, which is not enough arrests to make any conclusions about who's actually doing this crime and why. Uh, get into that a little bit. Uh, you, you do a deep dive in the story uh, in in terms of the statistics that we have on arrests uh, and carjacking carjackings themselves. What conclusions do you think we can draw as opposed to the conclusions that are being drawn? Go ahead. Well, the conclusion is that it it's unlikely that somebody who commits a carjacking is going to be arrested because again, Last year for the cases in 2020, only 15% of those cases, based on data that the CPD gave to me, only 15% of the cases from last year, there were like four, over 1,400 carjackings. Um, and like 250 of those cases had any arrests associated with them. And so the in amongst the people arrested, more than half of them are young people, but it's also as my, as the experts I interview talk about, like there's, there are all kinds of reasons why young people could be overrepresented in the pool of arrestees while not actually being representative of your average of, or most of the people who are doing the carjackers. I mean, young people are more likely to commit a crime in a group. They're more likely to be caught for any kind of crime they commit because they're not as good at committing crimes or, pl- or planning their actions. Um, you know, young people are may not be as good at driving different models of cars. They may not be as good at driving, period. So, and most of the arrests that were made were made within like a day or a few days after after the after the car was carjacked. So after like the first week, CPD is just as likely to make an arrest, you know, in three months as they are in six months, which tells you that they're not solving these cases. If you're if you're if you're catching someone who just carjacked a car, that's one thing. But 
That's not like solving a case in which somebody got carjacked a week ago or a month ago, and you're putting together a case and looking at evidence, et cetera. Now, the department talks about how there's often very little eyewitness evidence because it happens so fast that people don't know who stuck a gun in their face and, gra- and took their car. You know, it's a very scary situation for victims. People aren't often able to identify who um, who was that assailed them. Oftentimes, the assailants may be like wearing masks, especially now with the pandemic. So there's like ways to uh, hide their faces. But that 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 goes even further to the point that we don't know if it's young people who are making who are making these uh, who are perpetrating these attacks. And uh, you know, there's not always video evidence, etc. So it's. The, the one of the most scandalous things about this is the way that even during this like city council hearing that I recount in the story, which happened back in January, I mean, Brendan Dinahin, who's the chief of detectives with, with the police department, was giving a presentation that was showing numbers for cases and that was showing numbers of arrests. And he was not being straightforward with the alderman about the arrest numbers, not actually necessarily representing the, the cases. And that a lot of the arrests he was talking about had nothing to do with carjacking at all. Because the way the CPD, again, is talking about this is they're, they're saying, okay, we arrested a thousand individuals in 2020 on criminal trespass to vehicle charges, which is very different than solving a carjacking case and arresting someone for carjacking. That's even assuming that you've got the right people, but criminal trespass to vehicle is a misdemeanor charge. And all it means is that you're in a car that is not yours and you don't have permission to be in. And so the vast majority of the arrests that they're making are for that. They're not for carjacking. And lots of people, I mean, there's like 18,000 stolen cars in Illinois every year. So lots of the lots of the the, the criminal trespass uh, charges could be related to just cars that were stolen that were parked cars that weren't carjacked. Auto theft hasn't become more common uh, in the last year than it has been in any previous year. Um, so w- there's just a lot. There's just a lot of glossing over the details. There's a lot of misdirection, and uh, watching some of our elected officials you know, some of them from communities that have been really hard, you know, hit hard by the carjackings, which are poor black neighborhoods on the South and West side or middle-class black neighborhoods as well. But black neighborhoods on the South and West side are primarily affected by the carjacking. So uh, some of the aldermen who've been like really, um, you know, kind of harsh in their rhetoric about this have been from those neighborhoods, but it's also been like Brendan Riley from downtown and Michelle Smith from Lincoln Park and the Northwest side, you know, police neighborhood aldermen. And um, there's just been a lot of um, a lot of like a, a strange unification around this kind of rhetoric that that um, that vilifies young people. And that we know we know from history, we know from the past that has not led to a reduction in crime, has not led to better outcomes for youth has not led to rehabilitation. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if there's any legislation that comes out of this. That's what the experts are worried about. When you talk about misdirection, uh, misdirection in terms of the analysis of what numbers that already exist, to what end do you think that misdirection is? In other words, is there a political uh, purpose for misdirecting us? Uh, Is there, is there a goal that the folk, the people who are misdirecting us have in mind? Well, so 
some of the people I interviewed, like some of the experts point out that what's happening right now is the police department is probably like is facing probably the biggest reputation crisis that has had since the Laquan McDonald shooting. Um, it's ever since the summer, basically, there's been a huge damage to the police department's credibility. And here's an opportunity to demonstrate that they are effective at what they're supposed to be doing um, to win back some credibility, uh, to demonstrate the necessity of the police department and that the necessity of increased resources to the police department. Because, of course, all this rhetoric about how the carjacking is out of control goes hand in hand with rhetoric about how the police department needs more resources. They need more helicopters. They need more surveillance equipment. So there is, you know, a moment now that the public is probably the most skeptical it's ever been toward towards the police department and how good they are at doing what they're actually supposedly supposed to be doing. And there's also, you know, the, the, the department has come the closest it's probably ever been to maybe a reduction of their budget or at least a lack of increase to their budget. So this is enough. This is like, you know, talking about car, talking about crime, talking about scary, violent crime that seems to affect not just, you know, certain blocks in the city where people are shooting each other all the time, but everybody, anyone at any point, anywhere could get carjacked. That's the message that the police department has been sending for months, that it could be at a gas station, in your driveway, you know, while you're idling at a red light. You know, if you're, it, you could be in a rideshare, you could be a rideshare driver. Anybody at any time is vulnerable, no matter where, where they are in the city. It's happening everywhere and it's totally out of control. And you need us to like, catch these carjackers and keep you safe. But as it turns out, the numbers don't even bear out that claim because they're not doing a very good job of catching the carjackers. So yeah, there's definitely a politics involved in this. And uh, it, it, it comes at a time when, you know, there, <laughs> there's a lot of conversation about the police department killing people, killing young people, about, you know, the way that they handled the protests this consent degree is going on. There's, you know, reports from the monitors that aren't flattering. There's, um, you know, there's just pressure from a lot of different sides uh, on the police department and a lot of questions about whether or not they deserve to be, you know, eating up 40% of the city's budget. And what I thought was interesting too in this is that for maybe this is like a very, this is like a very unique example of this, but the, the the representatives of the prosecutor's office of the Cook County State's Attorney's office, you know, kind of deviated from the message of like law enforcement is what you need to solve this problem. I mean, the people, the people who prosecute these cases, who, again, contrary to what a lot of people seem to believe, are not downgrading these charges, are not willy-nilly dropping these cases. The people, the 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 people who are brought in on felony carjacking related charges to the state's attorney's office, more than 90% of them are getting charged and are getting convicted. So those people are saying, you know, I don't know if we're going to solve this problem through increased penalties of any sort or, you know, changing the law or, you know, reinstating automatic transfers of youth to adult criminal court. Um, The prosecutors are saying that this is a poverty problem that we've got a problem of a lack of access to resources, a lot of young people who are neglected and abused, and 
you know, that, 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 that to, in order to reduce crime, you need to reduce the kind of conditions that bring people to, 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 to commit, to, to, to do anti, antisocial things. So yeah, it's, um, it, it's kind of incredible. My, my biggest hope out of this is just that we, our colleagues in the local media start being a little bit more, um, bring a little bit more critical thinking to their reporting about, you know, about these carjacking issues and about what the police are saying um, when it comes to the data. Because it's really incredible that their own data doesn't bear out the narrative that they're painting. Uh, one of the uh, more bizarre uh, sideshows uh, in your stories when you're recounting the city council meeting uh, and Walter Burnett of the 27th oh, yeah. Ward uh, gets <laughs> up and, uh, you know, the, I almost wrote a whole column about that. I was ready to write a column about this, uh, Maya, and then I got distracted by uh, the uh, indictments of um, Patrick Daly Thompson and Rick Munoz on the same day. <laughs> wow, what a city. Anyway, um, so I wrote about that. but. Walter Burnett, uh, Alderman of the 27th Ward, uh, which is a ward that uh, portions of which are rapidly gentrifying. And as such, he has an abundance of uh, property tax dollars in his TIF. He he talks about them as though they're his TIF dollars, when in fact it's money, as I love to point out, that all of us pay citywide. It's not his. We've all contributed to it. Anyway, he goes, I'll spend my TIF dollars to buy a helicopter. And it's just like, just the, you talk about misinformation and misdirection uh, in this larger story. It's, there's so much embedded in that point. You know what I mean? Like a helicopter would somehow or other cut back the number of carjackings is one piece of misinformation. The notion that the TIF money is his money because it happens to be generated in gentrifying neighborhoods that are in his wards is misinformation. And then the the third point is like somehow or other what that this would be a more effective expenditure or limited public funds to buy a helicopter as opposed to, I don't know. Well, Social worker, librarian, nurse, etc. Go ahead, take it away. Yeah, what I thought was interesting is the, about the way he framed it. Is I thought like, huh, this is a, this is a perfect example of like the people in government, of like a person in government fully confirming what Ben has been saying for like twenty years now. Like he literally says, "I allow the city to use my TIF money to do everything else. Use my TIF money to buy a helicopter, like." What more evidence do you need that like this is just like these TIF funds are just a slush fund for the city to do whatever it is that they want to do? Like this isn't for economic development for poor communities. Like this is for the for the city to do whatever they want. Use it to buy a helicopter, man. <laughs> Yeah, man, you stop by a helicopter. Uh, by the way, I just got a text from Stacy. She's uh, uh awaiting a text from us. Uh excuse me, our e- email invitation, and we'll bring Stacy on to talk about schools. Uh, so Stacy Davis-Gates uh, is awaiting uh, our email invitation. Uh, but yeah, no, I saw that. I laughed. And I, I almost, I had to, uh, like I said, I wanted to uh, to write. So you say uh, 20 years. Oh, my God. It's more like 40 years. But who's counting, uh, Maya? Um, all right. You talk about effective deterrence. 
if there's a carjacking problem in the city of Chicago, uh, presumably we would study, do an, an analysis of the numbers, analytics, that's the rage in sports anyway, and then you come up with a strategy uh, as a deterrence. What would you say advise the Chicago Police Department, uh, the Walter Burnett's of the world, the Lori Lightfoot's of the world, uh, based on your research, would be an effective deterrence? Look, again, I just want to say it's really hard to figure out what would stop the 85% of carjackers that the police department isn't catching because we don't know who they are or why they're doing this. So there's like several aldermen like Andre Vasquez and Mike Rodriguez. They talked about chop shops. They talked about is, is this being driven by like a profit motive? Are these cars being sold um, in order to, in, in order to sell for parts or, you know, resell in the black market or whatever. The police department is vehemently denying that this has anything to do with that, that this current spike uh, has anything to do with shop shops or a profit motive. The police department is saying that, no, these are young people seeking to joyride. And most of the time they dump the cars. They dump the cars a few hours, a few, a few hours later and they, they move on to something else. So again, like, but they, they're very, they're being very, unclear in terms of their data on how many cars they recover and how many cars are returned to their owners. So if most of the cars are being dumped, then you would think that most of those cars are returned to their owners. But when I asked about data for this, they wouldn't write it. And I had to file like a bunch of FOIAs for this that I'm still waiting the records, you know, for. So what, I mean, in the big picture is like what deters crime in general is like, when people's needs are met and they don't need to commit crime. I mean, some look, some crime is always going to be with us. Like that's just part of like being a human society. Like there's always going to be murders. There's always going to be like interpersonal violence. There's always going to be, um, you know, there's always going to be some kind of harm that people are causing each other. But, you know, we've got an unprecedented economic crisis in the same context that you've got, you know, people, people are losing their jobs. People are locked, you know, people are like unable to move. They have a difficult time getting around and you have this like uptick in this one type of property crime, which by the way, coincides with the fact that every other type of burglary, robbery, every other type of crime of that nature has plummeted. Like there were 24,000 fewer instances of like robberies and thefts and, 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 and uh, burglaries last year. And like a, an 800 incident jump in, in carjacking. So overall crime is down, you know? So you would think it could be a lot worse given how, how many people have lost their jobs and livelihoods in this pandemic. So, you know, I would, my, my feeling is that like, we probably won't need to have more of a conversation about deterrence than we would in a normal year in a few more months. Like if the economy recovers, if, if, if people are, you know, if things bounce back, which maybe they won't return to the way things were for still uh, like a much longer time. But basically, I mean, already the, indi- the data from last month indicate that like the carjackings are already down. And the police department is already claiming, you know, claiming that they're the reason why that because they have this big task force now and 
they're 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 you know they're catching these folks, but the data really isn't there to prove that. Um, so you know, how do you deter crime? I mean, why why aren't you out there carjacking? Because you have a car and you don't need to, right? And you don't have, you know, you know, if you if you've got issues that make you mad enough to go out and stick a gun in someone's face, maybe maybe you'll go to see a therapist first. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't have any I don't have any policy recommendations uh, beyond the the very general ones that everyone always talks about. Yeah. Which we we make at times of crisis, but then uh, don't fund on a regular basis. All right, Stacy Davis Gates is with us. Uh, Maya, I'm going to let you go, but I'm just going to urge everybody to check out this story. Politics of fear is the headline. The cops say mass teenage teen carjackers with a thirst for violence and joyrides are terrorizing city. An examination of arrests reveals a narrative built on shoddy data and anecdotal evidence. Maya, great job. Uh, you took the deep job and. Uh, um, I'm t- urging all of the reader editors to give you a raise for your good work. Uh, so thank you. <laughs> Maya likes that. Yeah. Although she was a hoodlum back in the day when she was seven. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Maya, thank you very much. We're going to take a brief break. And when we return, the great Stacey Davis Gates will join us. So stick around, everybody. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky show live from his attic. That was Michael Girardi. I want to be a centrist, whatever it takes. The man's yearning to be a centrist, ladies and gentlemen. All right, I'm no centrist. I know, look, ladies and gentlemen, before I bring on Stacey, I have to say, I realize who I am. I know I'm an old lefty who's been writing for an alternative newspaper since Stacey Davis Gates was in grammar school, <laughs> since before Maya Dukmasafa was born. So I know who I am, all right? But sometimes it's... <laughs> Even even with the knowledge of who I am, it's like I'll read something in the mainstream media and it's like I, I don't exist on the same planet as the rest of the people in the city of Chicago. And it's like the coverage of CPS CEO Janice Jackson and her decision to step aside and leave her position is so bizarre. It's like wrestling and i told stacy this briefly before she came up it's like wrestling there's a narrative and in that narrative there's an evil wrestler who plays the crowd <laughs> and the evil wrestler is the chicago teachers union they're destroying our city they're destroying our school they're bringing politics into the school politics have always been in the chicago public schools when you put the schools under the control of a mayor that makes them political you could say, well, the teachers union represents a different political faction within that political chess game that is education in Chicago. But to say that the teachers union have brought politics in the public schools and that Janice Jackson and Lori Lightfoot and Miguel Valle are just innocent little bystanders who believe in a pristine, idealistic world where politics isn't involved. And Rob Emanuel, let's not forget him. Come on, Chicagoans, you can't be that stupid. Sorry, that was just my editorial aside. I apologize to Stacey Davis Gates for going forth on it. All right, Stacey, you heard my view on what went down yesterday with the uh, narrative as to why Janice Jackson uh, is leaving CPS and what it means. What's your take on all of this? Well, I think politics have always been a part of education in America. Remember, we have the distinction of having anti-literacy laws here in America. People like me 
were um, prohibited from, it was illegal for me to be literate. Um, so think about politics and education. Think about Plessy v. Ferguson that legalized segregation and um, think about our school system. Think about the Brown v. Board of Education and all the subsequent um, Supreme Court cases that came after that to ensure desegregation. Um, think about local school councils and the fight that um, organizers like Dorothy Tillman, um, organizers like Marion Stamps, right, put forth. Um, think about in 1995 when the mayor of Chicago went to Springfield and stripped teachers of their bargaining rights. Think of 1996 when the mayor of Chicago and other business interests went to um, Springfield and passed the Charter School Act, which um, opened the door wide for the privatization. And then think of Rahm Emanuel um, convening a blue ribbon task force to close 50 schools. So this concept of politics and education has always been there. I think what's different and what, where the learning curve is for most is that the fight back in coalition, the fight back with a multicultural coalition it's different hmm. in this iteration of school politics. So as a history teacher, I think it's important to state facts about public education and um, politics. The Willis wagon, um, the strike that black parents, black families and black students went on. Think about um, the recognition even within the Chicago Teachers Union if you want to talk about politics of black teachers and how they led some of the most radical behavior within the union. So this, this concept of politics and education has been a part of it. It is just as American as apple pie. So I don't want to fight on those terms because that's not a fight. Those are facts, right? But, and I think what we have to do is interrogate why families and communities having voice within the Chicago public school system is such a nightmare for some folks, right? Because that's what I also heard yesterday, is that the Chicago public schools is going to change because democracy will become a part of its operations. A fundamental principle that is shared, at least for blue states across this country, is something that a democratic city is pushing back on. The fundamental right to self-governance, right? Think about self-governance that can be given to people in the city to make it more equitable, to provide agency to their needs, is what was lampooned yesterday in a way. Um, I think also the negotiating table that I, that I sit at has just been grossly uneven. Like they just say no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
no explanation provided. Um, and then they talk in circles to come back to know again. Um, there is a culture of autocracy, if you will, that permeates the way in which that particular part of our city works, which means it doesn't work. You can't be in America and lift up democracy. You can't be a Democrat and talk about Republicans and in the same breath say that you don't want an elected school board here in Chicago or that the infusion of voices that may be dissimilar from yours is problematic. Well, let's we'll get to the school board uh, matter uh, in a little while. That was the central uh, thrust of the Chicago Sun-Times editorial where they used <laughs> where they used Janice uh, Jackson's departure as exhibit one as to why we should not have a school uh, elected school board. How we should be very afraid of an elected school board. Uh, one of the points that Janice Jackson made. Stay there for a second, though. Yeah. I, I, I find I find that ironic in a way. Um, because I, since mayoral control, your CEOs, she is on the longer end of tenure, right? So when the mayor's in control of schools, the turnover at the top has been more severe, right? Think about it. Arnie Duncan, Huberman, Mazzani, um, Brizard, Barbara Burr Bennett, Jesse Ruiz, um, Forrest Claypool, Janice Jackson. And I may have missed someone in there, right? That's just off the top of my head. I'm not looking at any notes. So this concept of instability is endemic to mayoral control, endemic to the politics that are dictated from the fifth floor of this city. It's, it's almost like we live in a reality that the headlines and others are trying to change. No, the reality is, is that mayoral control has been unstable, has promoted instability. 50 schools closed. That was just one, but hundreds of schools have been closed. Hundreds of black teachers have been purged from the system. That is the, the mayoral control, quite frankly, has been a destabilizing factor within the Chicago public schools. Uh, that was, by the way, a very impressive recitation without notes, ladies and gentlemen, of all the uh, CEOs. Uh, and the, you forgot Vallis. Uh, well, I, oh, maybe I didn't, didn't forget. forget <laughs> Before Ernie Duncan. It wasn't like, no, the way it's presented is that the world was dark. And then Mayor Daly turned on the light. That's how the world is presented. And so every, every, every year they have to remind us, it's the mayor who knows all. Uh, one of the uh, points uh, that Janice Jackson made uh, yesterday as she was leaving, or she hasn't left yet, but as she was announced she was leaving, is that there's just no dealing with the Chicago Teachers Union. They're out of control. Uh, and... Uh, they're just not rational or logical and they don't represent the teachers. And she said, and I'm quoting from the sun Times story, Jackson says she gets emails all the time from teachers who said they don't agree with the hardline positions their union is taking or the harsh rhetoric emanating from CTU leadership. 
but she lamented the fact that, quote, nobody's speaking out, unquote, against CTU leadership. It's ugly and it needs to stop and it doesn't help our district. Your response, Stacey. Um, in terms of our membership, I think people see our car caravan. I think people saw our rallies or demonstrations. So I think the evidence speaks for itself, right? And those aren't anecdotes. That's just like Google us. <laughs> um, beyond that, though, I think it's important to think about this in a broader way. Number one, CEOs and mayors across, CEOs and superintendents, as well as mayors across this country are quitting. Um, and that's a consequence of the difficulty of the pandemic and the different type of leadership that will be necessary to both deal with the pandemic and then recover from the pandemic, right? That's a different skill set. And I wish more would have been made out of the fact that New York lost the super, well, the head of their schools, LA is losing the head of their schools, Florida lost the head of their schools, I think Houston lost the head of their schools. So Chicago is not alone in that, right? This is a dynamic city. Um, the position of CEO is highly politicized, right? You mentioned Paul Vallis. Case closed, right? Um, but beyond that, I think that this aspect that we relish acrimony strikes and rallies is ridiculous, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, we're experiencing the pandemic, too. I've lost people close to me to COVID. Um, I've had people close to me get ill. This whole concept that we are not human beings and not experiencing this, all of what everyone else is experiencing is absolutely ridiculous. And it is reductive and it is demeaning and it's erasure, to be honest with you. Um, there is a way to shut the Chicago Teachers Union up, though. I mean, it's, 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 it's easy. Um, make sure schools have libraries and librarians. Make class sizes smaller. Make sure schools are safe to inhabit and that they are clean. Right? Put a nurse and a social worker in every school. We will at the end of our contract, by the way, because we had to fight for it. We had to fight for it. So this concept that we are fighting for something phantom is ridiculous because the empirical evidence is by the end of this contract, there will be a nurse and social worker in every school community, right? That came through struggle. Class sizes will be smaller for students in areas of this city that need more resources than not. Right. We are in a precipice of settling a lawsuit we brought against the Chicago public schools for firing black teachers. Right. But the, all of those things required us to struggle, to fight, to challenge. We did not get results by asking nicely. We didn't get them from being in meetings with people um, who agreed with us. 
we got them because our members, families that we work with and for, as well as our allies and the community organizations and the grassroots organizations, put forth a list of demands and refuse to like concede. You know, I'm always struck by this concept of how we manipulate and use parents in this debate, right? Because I remember a hunger strike that lasted for damn near a month. A month. And in that hunger strike, there were parents and there were grandparents, there were educators, right? Real people who went on a hunger strike to save their school. You don't get people starving themselves if you are leading and engaging in a way that hears all voices, that implements policy, that provides agency to them. A hunger strike is at the end of a long continuum of ignoring, devaluing, and pushing aside voices that you don't want to hear and engage with. That hunger strike uh, that Stacey's alluding to, I presume, is the one for diet. Uh, before that one, there was a hunger strike in a Little Village, um, and that was to try to force uh, the, the uh, Paul Vallis, uh, Gary Chico, uh, school board uh, to set aside some money uh, to build a, a high school in an area where there's overcrowding. So yes, uh, politics have been very much involved as Stacy is pointing out uh, in the Chicago public schools forever. Uh, Stacy, uh, one of the things that struck me is that uh, in the coverage of Janice Jackson leaving, um, she was extolled uh, by pretty much uh, all the powers that be mayor Lori Lightfoot extolled her virtues. Uh, Miguel Delvay, who's the head of the board of education, former state Senator. I voted him for, for mayor when he ran in 2011, uh, must confess. And, um, Rahm Emanuel, they dragged him out of somewhere. <laughs> they found him somewhere. Hey, Rahm. <laughs> yeah, Rahm, I thought you're going to Japan. All of a sudden you're weighing the, Message to reporters in Chicago. The last person you want to quote when it comes to education in this system is Ron. Anyway, they found all these powers that beat it, said wonderful things about her. So let me ask you this. You had a deal with uh, Janice Jackson in negotiations more than once. Uh, you had to deal uh, with her administration, uh, all range of issues more than once. Did you ever once, ever see evidence and speak freely if you did, that Janice Jackson would ever act independently of a mayor? Um, I can't answer that question because that, you know, allows for more conjecture. I can say what I know. And what I know is that every deal that landed involved the mayor saying yes. And it takes her a long time to say yes. So, okay, I'm trying to read the tea leaves of that answer. Um, well, I, I mean, it's a mayoral control. I don't know if it's tea leaves, Ben. It's a mayoral controlled system. And this idea that anyone else is in control um, is not the experience that we've had, hmm. both with the previous administration and with this one as well. Yeah. But did they even play the game? Like saying... God, I mean, you're all educators. 
So presumably when the, 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 the Chicago Teachers Union made the demand following this and Stacey, that we need, it'd be a good idea to guarantee that we have librarians and social workers and nurses in the public schools, which when there's a crisis, everybody agrees is a great idea. Then when the crisis, like the immediate crisis passes, then nobody wants to push for it. So was there ever a moment in negotiation where Janis Jackson even just tried to play good cop and say, you know, I'm with you, Stacey. I understand you need nurses and social workers, but I can't get this mayor to agree. Was there ever a notion like that? Or did was it always the mayor's line, which is, we'll tell you what to do. Don't tell us what to do. I just know from my experience, and I'm just, I'll just stick to this, is that anything that got a yes is because um, it came from the mayor. I remember the phone calls. I remember the meetings. I remember, and even with this last um, memorandum um, of agreement to reopen schools, um, she was very involved with the details. Um, and so here we are. Look, I don't think the Chicago Teachers Union had any illusion with Forrest, with Jesse, with Terry, with um, Brizard, with Barbara Burr Bennett, you know, with Huberman, with any of them. Every iteration understood that it was a, it is a mayoral controlled district. And so we didn't, we've never personalized it with the CEO, to be perfectly honest with you because we don't see the CEO in the way that you see a superintendent. Mm -hmm. A superintendent is someone who is administrating a school district with an elected school board. We don't have that here in Chicago. We have a mayoral controlled school district um, and the mayor appoints the members of the board of education. So if that's what it is, that's who we focus on. We haven't had much, I mean, Forrest, Forrest was, you know, egregious with the special education stuff. So he got a lot of love because that was just the worst type of thing I think you could do. Um, but in my, la in my 10 years at CTU, he's the only CEO who um, got some love. Mm -hmm. But the rest of them, they work for the mayor. Uh, by, the, uh, by the way, I should point out that I've uh, often thought that the Terry Mazzani era that uh, I can't believe, by the way, you remembered him. That was great. Uh, was the golden age of uh, public education under mayoral control because he came in. He was the guy who came in after Huberman and before Rahm. It was that period in between after Daly had said he wasn't going to run for reelection and before Rahm was elected. Uh, our rubber stamped uh, to be our next mayor. Uh, and he came in. He goes, I'm not going to do anything. Because I'm going to let the next man. That was his. So I, I always called it the golden age. You know, the, this is a joke I made to Karen Lewis more than once. The less damage they do, the better off we are. So if you have a superintendent says, I'm not doing anything, that's pretty good in Chicago. The CEO, uh, a superintendent has to be licensed. Yeah, that's correct. I should correct it. And thank you for uh, pointing that out. Um, she's a history teacher, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Uh, you said you don't take it personal about what um, CEOs do and uh, Janice Jackson in particular, but she made it personal against Chicago teachers union as she walked out. She announced it. She, you were that one group that was vilified was the Chicago well, I, teachers. Union. Look, I can't tell a person how to feel, you know, heck I can't tell the three kids in this household how to feel. They get to feel how they want to feel. So, you know, I'm not going to dispute feelings, 
I will stand by, you know, the concrete actions of our membership and our allies to bring um, stability to this district. Listen, I, I picked off a list of CEOs. The members of the Chicago Teachers Union are going to be there tomorrow and beyond, right? We're, we're going to still be in the school community doing our jobs. And we're going to be doing it with the students who are still there and will remain there with the families that, you know, entrust us with their children. We have been and continue to be a stabilizing factor in um, the school dynamic. And we'll, we'll do that. And we're also not going to act as if, all of our needs are met in all of our school communities, right? Right now we're dealing with issues that range from nursing mothers and pregnant mothers being denied accommodations. We're dealing with ADA accommodations coming through slow, if at all. Some of them are, some of them are a little slower than they need to. And so those are things that we're concentrated on now. Like, look, it is still a pandemic. I know people want to act as if this is post-pandemic or we're in the recovery phase. We're not. People are still dying, right? Um, and it's getting better. Like, I love the stat from Pilsen that they have the least amount of infections because they also have the maximum, they are maximizing the vaccine. That's our latest skirmish, if you will, with the mayor and CPS, is that we won... Um, a piece of agreement that says that we're going to get students and families vaccinated. Their idea of upholding their end to that agreement is to give us a flyer and tell them to come. Our idea of how you uphold that agreement is to set a goal of having, like Joe Biden has set a goal that by Joe Biden says, our president, 70% of Americans will be vaccinated by July. We're asking for a similar metric from the Chicago public schools and the mayor. Let's set a goal and let's work together, emphasis on together, to meet the goal. Because I'm gonna tell you this, they're gonna open schools back up in August and we're gonna have a similar issue that we have now if we are not engaging the families who dominate the roles in Chicago public schools, our students on the North side have come back, right? Many of the ones in selective enrollment environments have come back. The students that have not come back are our students who live on the South side or the West side or the Southeast side or the Southwest side. We have to create a strategy, strategies perhaps, to integrate those families back into buildings. And if we don't do that, then we're torpedoing the very thing in the community that they spent all summer, all fall, most of the winter saying is the anchor, um, is the very important you know, piece of culture um, in our neighborhoods. I'm with you on this one 100%. I get going on this. I'm going to really re- try to restrain myself, Stacey, uh, because... I do not see uh, the in in the city of Chicago. They're just going to isolate it in Chicago because 
maybe even worse outside of Chicago. But I do not see an all hands on deck attitude in Chicago when it comes to the vaccine. And I really don't see any evidence whatsoever that the powers that be in the city are working in this particular case with with the Chicago Teachers Union, which represents whether you like them or not, ladies and gentlemen, the Chicago Teachers represents perhaps the most vocal left of center organization in the city. And I would say a good chunk of the voting population agrees with them. So if you don't like Stacey Davis Gates or you don't like Jesse Shark, What do you mean they don't like us? <laughs> I, lo- I love them, okay? Jesus. You know, if I can get along with them, they can get along with me, you can get, but you got to work with them. And I just always feel it's an ultimatum with, with and, and, then, and then mayors are judged by how harsh they are in their rhetoric to the teachers union. That's how mayors are judged, Stacey. It's like, did she stand up to the teachers union? You did she stand bu- up to people asking, <laughs> demanding a librarian? Like, you know, I always, I spend a lot of time, I read. I, you know, I don't get to, like, get involved in novels and good books anymore because, you know, kids, job, real life. Um, I hate that. So I read a lot of um periodicals right going back on my library training um from elementary school um so i read a lot of periodicals and it is amazing to me the way in which a narrative has been created about the teaching force which are members of the teachers union right so you have a profession that is almost 85 percent female being blamed for maternal economic loss because they wanted to be safe. So I'm scratching my head trying to figure out who edited that piece before it was, before someone hit send on it. Because the first like obvious question is, aren't teachers also women? And then wouldn't they also probably more than likely ought be mothers too. So how are they blocking their own bread? You know what I mean? Could this be about something else? Um, and so simple inquiry is, is like, I'll give you a question that no one is asking. Um, our mayor says that she doesn't want a school board unless undocumented parents get to participate. Now, I'm not, I ain't against that. You know, undocumented um, residents of Chicago send their children to the Chicago public schools. And I'm not naive enough. Like, they love their kids just like I love mine. You know, love doesn't come with citizenship. It just is. Um, That being said, she said that she wanted them on a school board. If, if I'm at a press conference and she keeps saying this, I'm going to ask her, did you appoint any undocumented parents to the school board because you have appointment power to illustrate the importance of that principle, value? No one is asking that question, right? I almost feel, feel like she's using that issue in a very manipulative manner to try and torpedo the legislation in a way. And it's cynical to me. And I, and, and people shouldn't be used in that manner. Uh, okay. Now let's move to elected school board. Absolutely. Let's just, and, and I'm going to take a motion, an, 
a moment just to point out something that adds on to what Stacey Davis Gates just said. In Chicago, the mayor and her allies are saying one of the reasons they're opposed to an elected school board is because it doesn't guarantee uh, that undocumented citizens uh, be members of the school board, which is an interesting uh, point for them to raise, since I don't recall any mayor ever putting an undocumented citizen, let alone Lori Lightfoot putting one on. But I will point out, Stacy, that the votes that the mayor got in Springfield when the House met and voted on Delia Ramirez's proposed legislation to create an elected school board in Chicago were all Republicans. Let's just think about this. this is the party of Trump. This is MAGA. America in Illinois voting against an elected school board. Do you think ever MAGA, Donald Trump, Republicans have stood up for the rights of undocumented citizens in America? No. Their entire movement emerged from Donald Trump's assertion that people coming in from the southern border were dangers to us. So suddenly now the, <laughs> the mayor's saying she's doing she's against elected school board for undocumented citizens because undocumented citizens aren't on it, guaranteed. And she's being supported by Republicans. It's so bizarre, Stacey, if you start pulling it apart. And well, you'll be chasing get, your tail. Yes, you'll be chasing your tail. And, and, you know, listen, I'm I think we're all smart enough to understand that 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 is the objective. Right. It's for us to chase our tail on that and try and make sense out of nonsense Um, instead of just being clear about the fact that this is an issue of democracy. This is uh, an issue of voting rights. And I'm clear that I don't think people who oppose it are thinking about how much they sound like red state politicians, right? So you're telling me that a school district that represents 90% of melanated people, 90% of melanated people, that you telling them that they cannot have an elected school board doesn't represent this type of voter suppression, that the type of uh, uh, ballot blocking that they're doing in Florida, that they're doing in Georgia, and that they're doing in 41 other states in this country. It is the same principle. It is the same racism. It is the same paternalism. Democracy is not something you allowance out. It is something that is. And that's why I think I get so frustrated with how um, these issues are covered, right? Because I don't get to talk to you if struggle, fights, challenges, tactics were not employed. Women didn't get to vote in the original document. Non-land-owning white men didn't get to vote. The continuum of democracy comes because of struggle. The enhancement and the expansion of democracy comes because there are organizers and activists who are patriotic enough to make it better. Think about that. And so when I hear people talk about they're, they're, they're doing it wrong, well, then point out an example to me throughout our illustrious history in this country 
where those who have been marginalized, pushed to the edges, invisibilized, have ever received a red carpet to democracy, a red carpet to participation in this society at its highest level. It has never become, it has never come to those people because it was given to them freely. Count women, count white women, count melanated people, count working class people. Think of the struggles, the labor struggles of yesterday and who that impacted. So look, we can disagree on, a, on, on um, ideology, right? But we cannot disagree on how the expansion of democracy happens, has happened, continues to happen in this country. We can't, that, that's not something to like dispute. It, those are facts. Uh, by the way, I just want to point out uh, to, to uh, uh, Stacy's point that right now, uh, the um, support that Lori Lightfoot has for uh, her version of a school board, which would be mostly appointees of the mayor, is being pushed by people who don't even live in the city of Chicago. It's a, the House, just so you know, folks, the way it works, the House has to pass the bill, the Senate has to pass the bill, and the governor has to sign it. J.B. Pritzker's kind of governor's trying to stay it out, saying, I'll sign it, I'll sign it, but he's not really got a strong advocate in this thing, as far as I could tell. The House passed L.A. Ramirez's bill with Democrats lining up. I think every Democrat voted except maybe one for it. And uh, or maybe I have it wrong. The Republicans all voted, voted against except for one. There was one Republican that voted for it. And I think there were a couple of Democrats absent and one who abstained. Right. Okay. Absent. The old absent ones. All right. Anyway. So now it's uh, now once again, we turn to the Senate. The head of the Senate is a senator from Oak Park a suburb of Chicago named Don Harmon. The sponsor of Lori Lightfoot bill is a Senator Lightford also from the Western suburbs. They can't, find, you figure they dig up someone in Chicago to represent the bill. I just want to, I have to point that out, Stacy. Do you think that uh, your bill will pass the Senate, the bill that exists right now, the Delhi Ramirez uh, Rob Martwick bill will pass the Senate, or do you think that uh, we'll end up with a compromise that will be negotiated uh, with Harmon sort of representing the mayor? So, Go ahead. So I'm not thinking <laughs> because, you know, um, you know, you, what is it? Pity for your thoughts is not enough. Um, but what I am tracking is that um, the popular pitting of the Chicago Teachers Union against the mayor on this issue is actually wrong, right? We belong to a coalition. And I know people hear that and they go, yeah, 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 yeah. But like real talk, it is a coalition. And you know many of those people who are in the coalition, so you know I'm telling you the truth, is that the CTU gets a vote in the coalition. And the CTU gets outvoted in the coalition at times. And that's okay. Right. Because that's how this works. You know, you take a vote. We get a lot of practice of it at CTU anyway. We take votes for every damn thing. That that being said, said, and and, and it's okay. That's not a dig. It's it's work. It's routine. And it's okay. Um, But my point being 
is that I don't under, they don't understand those who are covering it and, and those who are trying to make allowances for the fifth floor. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think anyone's trying to make allowances for Lori Lightfoot as much as they're trying to make allowances for a business community that in 95 and 96 said that this is the way that they wanted it. So if our side thinks it's the mayor, if our side thinks it's just um, the Senate president, we don't have a complete understanding of what's happening. Just like the other side says CTU, and they don't have a complete understanding of what's happening. There are competing forces all over the place on this issue. And that's why it's important to boil it down to what it is. It is about democracy for melanated people who send their children to the Chicago public schools, that they get to have agency. Then I'll tell you the truth. Being a member of the Chicago Teachers Union gives me way more voice and agency in how my children are educated than I get as a mom. Now think about that for a moment. I have to get hired into a place or I have to run and be elected to something within the union in order to have any agency over the education that my three children receive from the Chicago public schools. That is undemocratic. That is grossly unfair. And that is such a limited number of voices. Right. And so again, if you are blocking the ballot box for a school district that serves 90% melanated students, then you have to think that you are also carrying, not think, know that you are also carrying the flag of the red state um, voter suppression brigade. Mm. You are, there's no way around that one. Uh, I, I, I'm with you on this one. And I, and I say this as someone uncertain as to how effective a school board will be. I had that debate. I don't know if you were there that night. Karen was there, Karen Lewis, myself. There was a whole bunch of people on stage. I was like the most skeptical guy on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I don't know, you know, I've watched democracy in quotes, Stacy for a long time in Chicago with the city council. And, <laughs> but you know what? It is but democracy. But the answer to the, the, the challenges you have with democracy is not autocracy or dictatorship. It's the expansion and the refinement of the democracy that you have. At least that's the way it's worked. Like, so white men who don't own land can work or can vote now. Think about that. You didn't, you didn't have that ability when this, when this project, this idea first started, but now it's a reality. So White non-land-owning men worked on their enfranchisement. I, I would say that uh, constitutes a touche, <laughs> and we'll close it down. <laughs> Stacy Davis Gates hasn't lost a trick, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but you're absolutely correct, and uh, I'm going to uh, end the conversation by conceding you had the good point and that is true. Uh, the solution is not less democracy. <laughs> the solution in my humble opinion is more democracy. All right, Stacy, uh, thank you so much. And, uh, I appreciate the fact that you were willing to come on at short notice. I read the story in the paper. I was, and then I went for a walk. I texted Stacy, Hey Stacy, can you come on tomorrow to talk about this? And she said, yeah. So, uh, appreciate it. You, uh, breaking in your busy day to come and talk to a, 
talk to me and um, stay well, stay safe and sound. And we'll talk to you real soon. All right, Stacey. You too, Ben. Thank you. And Dennis for always, you know, giving us an opportunity. All right. That's Stacey Davis Gates. Good friend of this show. Always has been. Whenever I've been in front of a microphone, Stacey Davis Gates uh, has been showing up and speaking out. And I want to thank Maya Dukmasafa as well. Uh, she did a great job early in the show talking about the politics of fear. I urge absolutely everyone to check out that article cover story in this week's reader. Great job by Maya. And of course, as Stacey already alluded to, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Stacy and Maya will tell you, and Janice Jackson would agree, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Take a chill pill, man. Take a chill pill, man. Thank you, Chicago. The enemy is you. The enemy is you. Take a chill film, man.